Welcome to this week's edition of The Green Majority. Thank you so much for listening. We're getting into some really interesting conversations about money and power these days. No exception this week and some other big shows coming up on this topic soon, so I hope you enjoy it. A real quick reminder, as usual, if you would like to help support this program and get it uh, listened to by more people, help us get some ad budget, maybe some better equipment, you can support us at greenmajority.ca and click on the How You Can Help button, or go to Patreon, which is p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash greenmajority. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be a member. Thanks so much, and enjoy the show. I'm your host. Oh, there we are. I think just in case my volume was low, let me try that again. Welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Darren Kaster, and we're, of course, broadcasting on CIUT as well, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners internationally, as well as the uh, Ravel.ca. A great mm-hmm. website uh, that is also hosting our show, um, and of course the uh, our own site, which hosts our show with the extended podcast version, Whoa. which is great. Woo. Sabina's here; she's going to be talking about a bonus show when she figures out what she decides it wants to be later. <laughs> uh, but for now, uh, a couple of quick announcements, and then we're going to go straight to Stefan because there was, uh, you know, as usual, there was a lot of news to talk about. I have seventeen tabs open, and that was just my sort of choice picks. Uh, but there was one sort of that sort of overshadows them all, which was the quote unquote Panama Papers scandal. So we're going to go to Stefan for that in just a minute. A couple quick reminders slash announcements in the meantime. First of all, next week is the CIUT Spring 2016 membership drive. I didn't say fall this time. Uh-huh. Uh, which is next week. That'll be next week's show. So please uh, do stay tuned for that. We'll still have a couple of good guests, including Angela Bischoff from the OCAA, as well as Tim Nash will also be joining us next week. Uh, and then the following week after that, if my math is right, is it right? Yes, it, I think it's, it's right. right. Yeah, two weeks from this from two weeks from this very day, Earth Day. In case you're confused about when that is, because maybe you're not listening live. Uh, if you're in the Toronto area, also please join us for our 500th episode celebration. We did, in fact, go to all the trouble of uh, you know slightly adjusting time and space such that our 500th episode landed on Earth Day. I still don't know how that actually worked. You're welcome, Steph. Yeah. So, uh, so I spared no expense. Yes, over the five, over the nine and a half years to randomly land on Earth Day. It's just I can't. I want to go back and actually see how that happened. Yeah, I bet it was all a cunning plan by Jordan Popek. Uh, but before we get on too much of a diatribe, before uh, without going to the news, let's go straight to the news. So, Stephen, okay. please start us off. Panama Papers scandal. Okay, so uh, so this is. This may already have been beaten to death in your minds and brains, uh, but it's only going to keep going for quite some time. So uh, I'm gonna, first, I'll start off by giving a quick, a quick rundown of some of the facts uh, of the of this of this thing in case you in case you haven't heard them, uh, and then we'll get into a bit of of why I guess we think it's important for the environment and why we think it's important to uh, to this sort of environmental justice lens, uh, because. As I, as I sat up uh, this morning trying to understand, I was going through all the data and I was reading it off and I've re- been reading like four, you know, I've been reading articles like every day about this uh, for the past week. 
And you keep hitting the same sort of the articles. All the articles of Pandora's take a similar track, right? It's it's they it's it's about one person in it. They're usually high profile, and then it runs through all the data, the same information that you've seen before, and then says, and there's more to come. Um, and, and, and the reason why there's more to come is because this was an unprecedentedly large leak. Uh, this was a leak in sizes of, of information that didn't exist 10 years ago. Uh, I remember like a couple years ago when I first heard of the word terabyte, and I was like, what's that? And it's like, oh, it's like 1,000 gigabytes. I'm like, that's already so much. Uh, and so, uh, so what the Panama Papers are is a leak of 11.5 million documents. Uh, from the, a Panamanian law firm called Mossack Fonseca. Fonseca. I probably should have figured out exactly how to say that. Sounds very reputable. Carry yes, on. exactly. Uh, and uh, one thing to know about here as well is that this is just Mossack uh, Fonseca, just one of m- a bunch of other firms that do the exact same stuff in different tax havens. Uh, this is not just this is not the the end all and be all of of avoiding tax. Uh, this is just one firm within this larger lar- larger subset, uh, and the league itself is two point six terabytes of data. So that's two thousand six hundred gigabytes of data, uh, which is about all of the songs in the world. Uh, I don't actually know if that's true, but I feel like it could be. It's all of Napster. Put together. Ooh, Na- Na- you dated yourself. Yeah, yes, from way back. Um, but um, so, so, it's, so, so well, there's a couple of interesting little side stories to this. Which is first that it's actually a, it's it's a massive undertaking of collaborative journalism because over a hundred different publications, uh, all led by the International Consort- Consortium of, Inve- of Investigative Journalists, uh, have all been working on this. In part because it's it affects everyone. It's 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 this is this has touched on leaders from China to Russia to uh, there's like you know there's 200 American passports in, in in this leak. There's there's Canadians in this leak. There's the, the, the UK, the, United, the United Kingdom's Prime Minister David Cameron is mentioned in this leak. There's, it's everywhere, uh, and so they so this was a so all of the different journals uh, so they gave it to different people. So in Canada, it's the CBC and the Star have access to this, and they're part of this consortium, and uh, and it goes all. But, but it's, that's how wide ranging this is. So it's a world worldwide issue, um, and what and what this really is is that these 11.5 million documents are leaked, uh, and they cover offshore accounts and tax havens uh, in places like. Uh, the British Virgin Islands and Panama and all things like that. Uh, the, this firm, particular firm, actually sort of focused a little more on the UK, which is actually like why you see a, this being a slightly bigger deal in Europe uh, and, and in that, than the United States. Uh, because and also because this is sad, uh, United States offshore accounts are such a normal practice that it wouldn't like that it's not making much of a not nearly the splash it is there. Nobody's surprised. Yeah, exactly. Well, because it's, it's it's just it's it's it's. This was so. This was interesting. Uh, I was going to get to this later, but I'll jump in now with it, which is that one of the most interesting takes on this on the entire thing is from is from Glenn Greenwald, which it often is. Uh, in which that what's real the real scandal here isn't that people are doing it; it's that it's all legal. Uh, it's the same sort of it's the same sort of thing in, in, in with the WikiLeaks, uh, some other WikiLeaks scandals, which is that what's really concerning here. Well, it, but it is concerning that it's happening, but everyone sort of knew it was happening. What's concerning is that it's also legal, uh, and so there's almost no one in this. There's no actual. Uh, the worst that's going to happen are people resigning, uh, which gets me to the bit of the the bit of the follow up, or, or the the fallout of, uh, of of some of these different things, which is that uh, there have been massive protests in Iceland. Uh, and this is going to be this is going to kill me. The Prime Minister Sigmundur Gunnlaugsson. I think he did a decent job. Yeah. All right, I'll take it. Uh, he stepped down. Although he only said he stepped down uh, temporarily, which I don't think counts as stepping down. 
Just long enough for it to blow over. Yeah, I don't think that counts as stepping out. I think you stepped in. Like, if you leave, you leave. Uh, but he had $4 million in Icelandic bank accounts, uh, 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 Icelandic bonds, bank bonds, uh, through an offshore account, which he sold to his wife for $1 before becoming prime minister. Uh, but the real, the, the, this caused massive protests in Iceland. If, if anywhere this, 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 the, the pandemic have caused, uh, uh unrest it is in iceland hmm. um b- b- largely because when he did this it, iceland was still in the throes of the of the banking crisis uh and so, so to avoid tax at a time when iceland was basically going under uh because they didn't that's have why flight. he hit it yeah exactly <laughs> Um, and anyway, so he has stepped down. Uh, David Cameron is on, as I said earlier, is under some is under some fire. Uh, but it, that one seems like it's probably going to blow over. Uh, perhaps the biggest irony uh, of these uh, uh, so far that's been discovered is that the Chilean head branch of the global corruption watchdog Transparency International was res- had to resign because he had five offshore accounts. Um, you you that one's like not obviously a big name, but it's just ridiculous. Um, some other places. Uh, What's Pu- in a name? Stan? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Putin was sort of their lead story. He, uh, his, he had two billion dollars in the ways he sort of spent money at other, other places. Uh, but I, uh, I, I was watching some Russian television. Apparently, that's just a. a he's coming up for an election. Ah, and uh, this is, like this is all just to. Yeah, this is just to smear Putin. Actually, right, of yeah. course. Um, so also, he still has elections. Why do they even? Anyway. But all the all the Western ele- uh, leaders totally did it. But right, they're lying but, about him. Right, exactly. Um, so, so the, the other, the, the more, the, the more kind of terrifying, the more, the, the more like direct, I'll get to the sort of the, the larger concept of, the, of this sort of tax evasion and that sort of offshore account thing in a second. Uh, I just want to th- mention two quick things. One is that it's important to note that being connected to these papers does not, does not imply any wrongdoing. Uh, but, the, but. But what's also interesting about that is that that's written in every single one of these papers, uh, which I think was like intentional as a way to just. And, and to be fair, like a, a bunch of the American passports turned out to be just old people buying houses, like for to retire. Mm. Uh, so like that's like that actually is that they're just you know they're buying they want to live in the Cayman Islands. Let them go to the Cayman Islands. Uh, but I think it's interesting that, that that's the level of protection that the media has sort of gone to uh, yeah. for all. Well, and, and I think made. that's because essentially this is a giant list of wealthy people, right? And they're they're, they're protecting themselves from liability. Like they're, they're, I think that's really all that is. Yeah. I, I think it's just like, okay, well, here's a bunch of really powerful people. Let's not make sure we have to be absolutely crystal clear that we cannot be seen to be implying that anyone has broken the law because to to assert or to imply that that's the case without having any proof, they could get in a lot of trouble for yeah. that, right? So they're, they're just covering their butts. Yeah. Uh, and so the, so the other flip side of, of, of the dangers of offshore accounts uh, is, is that it also ends up being a big supplier of uh, a big supplier of sort of the dark money that goes into goes into sort of the conflict zones, the places that we're trying to sort of like the money that's sort of supporting the regimes that are actually doing despotic things and that to get around sanctions. Uh, terrorism, yeah, terrorism uh, for sure. Uh, like, uh, uh, there's a there's a whole link to it which I won't get into. Uh, which the brother-in-law, I think it is, mm. uh, or so, so maybe just something like that, uh, of 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 uh, the Syrian leader uh, was had a bunch of accounts in this in this in, in this firm was running for them, and then of course HSBC because HSBC cannot there cannot be a big leak without HSBC being coming under fire at least for one thing. Uh, so their Swiss bank, or their Swiss branch of, the, of HSBC, uh, just put all of this guy's um, companies in good standing, despite the fact that they were based like this was three years after the Syrian war began. Uh, but anyways. Uh, the so this is what I want to get to. So that, that that's the, that's basically it. this is a massive, massive leak of all of this sort of 
of tax evasion, basically. Uh, and, and tax evasion is a funny, is a funny thing, uh, in part because it sounds really boring. No one, no one wakes up in the morning, or at least very few wake up in the morning, and be like, you know what I really want to read a thriller about? Tax evasion. This is going to be great. Uh, you know, James Bond was never sent after people evading taxes. Uh, maybe he should have been. Maybe he should but have But he been. was not. Exactly. Uh, because but, Q was one of the people that was evading taxes. Right. Yeah. Well, and M definitely had some offshore accounts. Guaranteed. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, MI6 was not the most transparent. <laughs> Let's just move on from that, from that sidebar. Um, the... The in, so what I want to get to here on is that a couple weeks ago uh, we, we 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 touched on uh, on 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 who society protects uh, in power and if anything this conversation is about power uh, this conversation is about who and and, wh- and what power gives you and what power does not what what power can take away or lack of power can take away uh, because what's so fascinating about this is that not only is it not only is it uh, completely legal. Uh, it's also encouraged to some extent. So much of this sort of avoiding taxes is 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 standard practice within within these governments, and that it's that we don't even that that you would almost be judged not to. You're you're seeing like there well these opportunities that you would be stupid not to take, mm-hmm. uh, and so it's this thing where we've come, we've created a society. And to go back to to, to really put a finer point on it. Um, you know, we, we see all these movements, uh, which I described a couple weeks ago as uh, movements, or basically around people telling society that society doesn't protect us. Uh, the society that you know, uh, the the Black Lives Matter movement is saying literally Black Lives Matter, which is saying that society does not treat Black lives like they matter. Uh, so maybe society should start. Should we want a society that actually acts that protects us? Uh, and then this is the exact opposite of that. This is the other side of the spectrum uh, where where you can have these case in point examples of people basically saying hey government i'm not going to pay you a ton of money and i'm going to intentionally use these loopholes which you built into your system so i cannot pay you money uh and you're going to let it go right uh and there's another uh, to quick a quick uh throwback to a different story but very similarly uh the cbc story uh which was which was that kp the Canada Revenue Agency gave a bunch of high KPMG people working with KPMG um, basically a a carte blanche to come back and pay your back taxes. We won't. We caught they caught they caught a whole bunch of people avoiding ta- avoiding taxes, and they were like, just pay your back taxes, and we won't we won't actually find you and come after you. Uh, and it's these kind of protections that when you sort of see that when you see this in a in a to the two ends of the spectrum. So like if one week this one week you know one week it's the people whose society doesn't protect saying hey protect us, and one week the people society that protects uh, just walking around. Uh, I can't help but have this sort of. I just want to put those two sides. To me, that's what drives the sort of my confusion with the in the insidious nature of complacency. Uh, like, because being complacent in our current uh, in our current society uh, is is a privilege only afforded to a few, and the, and it's afforded to the people who either are in power enough that they are being given all these extra things. But there's a whole bunch of people of us who are sort of in this middle range. Uh, I won't call us the middle class because Kevin Farmer will wonder, will make a joke about how the middle class is literally everybody now. Um, but like, there's people who aren't, you know, whose society does protect physically, in like a, you know, in, the, in a physical nature, like my body is protected, uh, but doesn't, but we aren't afforded the sort of uh, these avails of power and the sort of uh, that that the that the rich and famous get. Uh, and I think if you want to, when you look at environmental justice and you look at 
uh, trying to bring people under trying to protect everyone who needs protected. Uh, and you can't separate Flint, Michigan, where there wasn't enough money uh, to 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 get lead out of the who was poisoning kids' water mains from the same people uh, from the people who are just, you know who probably live in the same state. Uh, who who are taking money away from this, that state by hiding it somewhere else in a legal loophole. Well, and let's remember why they didn't have any money. They didn't have any money because Governor Walker gave millions of dollars in tax breaks to the companies that were doing this. So he took the money from the population, gave it to these companies, and these companies went and shuffled it off in some tax haven. So not only did they not have the money by voluntarily reducing revenue for the state – but it then doesn't even get taxed and goes and gets filed off in some hut somewhere and registered under a house where that has 8,000 other, other largely fictitious businesses in it. Um, I mean, this is this is so systemic to the point that that's why everyone's like, you know, it's something we all know, right? Like, like that's what uh, I think it was Jen Uger uh, from the Young Turks who, who put it this way, and I really liked it this way, was like the only uh, – the shocking thing here is not that this happened. The shocking thing is that we already knew this was the case, and that's why nobody's surprised. Like that's why that's why like this should be the biggest thing ever, and the fact that it's not the fact that it's legal should be the biggest thing ever. Um, these should be these should be riot inducing things, and I'm not suggesting I want people to right. do this, but I'm just saying like as far as the level of corruption that this case, by my definition, I don't care if someone else wants to call it legal. You you change the laws to suit yourself. It's it's not just. It is antithetical to justice. Um, the the fact that nobody is surprised is the thing that should be the is should be the news story. Right, exactly, and I think that, that's that's sort of brings me to the, the sort of final point that I'm trying to wrap up with, which is that it's it's nobody's surprised a that there are all these people who aren't being protected, and nobody's surprised that there's all these people who are being super protected, and that and that the way that these are coming together uh, is that we've just accepted that this is how society works, and it's just. It's 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 to me what brings me to sort of the the, 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 the sort of level of like okay we know it's broken let's fix it uh, and let's fix it from its core because that's really the actual because you can't solve this problem with, with trimming here and there mm-hmm. as much as as much as Trudeau's hair might think that a slight trim can make it look beautiful uh, it still won't actually solve the underlying problem uh, and it, so. Uh, if I could leave us with one thought, it is that just that the Panama Papers aren't so much about you know Lionel Messi finding a way to save himself a couple hundred million dollars. Uh, it's about Flint, Michigan, uh, and 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 the places in this world that we're sort of letting the letting people die quite literally, letting people die because we because for lack of funds uh, in the same in the same jurisdictions where we're letting a bunch of people walk away and have buy a third yacht. Uh, these are the same story, and we have to think of them as the same story, and they should be reported as the same same story. Yeah. So thanks, thank you for that review, Stefan. I have I have two quick comments as well, and then we'll go to uh, Edward for our free music break here. Um, so there, I think there's two really important, and we'll just touch on them quickly because uh, you know I couldn't ask for a better timing for this story, seeing as I want to do my three part series well, <laughs> on the limits of democracy and the limits of capitalism um, coming up in a couple of weeks as uh, as well. Um, but so just to just to touch on it as a bit of a preview for for now, uh, one of them essentially is that, you know, people will say um, it, all, all these things that society wants. Right. So when whenever, you know, Elizabeth May now has been talking about an issue that I think is very, very sane uh, and we'll be discussing it when we get to those episodes, which was the um, uh, the the guaranteed minimum wage. Well, we can't afford that. We well, you'll have to raise taxes. 
Yeah. On like 12 people to pay for that stuff. All of this money exists. All of this money exists. All the, most of the things that would generally benefit society as a whole. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, gold-plated golf carts for everyone. We're saying basic necessities for society to have a functioning society that would – and again, I'll get into – we'll get into the longer argument for this in, when we get to that show. But you know, things like, well, what are the two biggest causes of, of crime? Well, poverty and drug use. And, and one of those influences the other one too, right? And so like a lot of these societal problems comes down to basically two things. People not having enough and so either not dealing with that well, so you know, uh, maybe using illicit drugs and, and therefore being a burden on society by creating disruption and anarchy and whatever, blah, blah, blah and health problem, you know, feeding up, blah. Uh, and the other one is mental illness. Right. And there's there are some people that are just criminally insane. Right. Or just, you know, we just need to be locked up for the safety of society. It has nothing to do with their socioeconomic status. Well, we can help both of those things. Uh, The only reason we aren't is because we theoretically supposedly can't pay for it. Well, guess what? All of those hundreds of trillions of dollars that are hiding in offshore accounts, that's our money, which comes to point two. Right. So. Think about all the time, like we're going to get to a story after the break that will really highlight this. But think about all the times when there's. You know, all these things the public has to pay for and bailing out the banks and all this stuff. All of those people have they're fine. The the year after the financial crash, all of those bankers that caused the crash, that did the gambling that caused the crash, that you didn't benefit from, they made record setting bonuses. They made the most money they've ever made the same year that everybody else pretty much lost almost everything. Canada was shielded a bit better than US, yes. That has nothing to do with the overall point. Um, so again, we're going to come back to this uh, both after the break and and ongoing. But there is a there is a massive direct link between this type of behavior and the environment. There, it's it's not a stretch in any means because you know one of the things people oh I don't want to I want to keep my money I don't want to pay taxes what why should I be taxed at a higher rate well you know if you own, and here's the really thing which people don't think about and I think you can use it as an example and think about it for a minute about how many other examples like this you could come up with is that was like well I shouldn't pay such high taxes but you know, because I do this and that, and I'm, why should I pay more? Well, okay, well, if you're, say, Walmart, and you have 100 million trucks on the road that each weigh a couple of tons, you are responsible for a gigantic portion of the damage to roads that the public then pays to repair. That's why you're paying taxes. You are costing things that we as a society have put together forward for general use. You're benefiting from their use and increasing the cost of maintaining them. And that's what you have to pay for. This isn't some fine on being successful. This is actually paying for what you take. And the fact that there's a different set of rules, like the example I want to make is the thin blue line, right? Everyone understands that idea of, you know, cops protecting each other. There's a different set of rules. You know, we can get it. We we won't get into it on this program right now. But, you know, Black Lives Matter, obviously, there's a direct thing there about cops protecting each other. Well, I'll tell you, there's another group of people that also have different rules that apply for them. And it's super rich people. And they don't go to jail. They don't pay taxes. And all of that stuff they do get comes out of your pocket and comes out of you. And you pay the price for their wealth. Um, so let's leave it there for now, but we're going to go to Edward for a music break. All right, and we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm sitting in studio with uh, my Stefan Hostetter as well. Sabina is also in the studio as well. Sabina Seni, did I get it right? Oh, yeah. Sweet. Uh, so Samina is going to be joining us a little bit, uh, well, after the show or a little bit later in the show if you're listening to the uh, the podcast version. Um, and we'll be jumping in uh, 
probably at the end of this segment to let us know what she wants to talk about um, and possibly jump again if she disagrees with something I say, which is what I told her to do. <laughs> She's our quality control expert here as well. Um, so the story I wanted to get to now is uh, that Blankenship gets a year in prison over mine safety conspiracy. Blankenship is the CEO of a West Virginia coal uh, company. And the... Um, this is a, re- a record setting. It's a very interesting story. It's a record set because uh, this is actually the first, according to the Bloomberg story. Uh, I wasn't able to do research beyond the story. On I, I couldn't confirm it, but I'm assuming I'll just assume that Bloomberg in this case is correct. The first American CEO to ever uh, actually be sentenced to actual jail time. Um, so... Essentially, what happened was uh, he is the uh, he, he looks like someone who fancies himself uh, a lord in the in the very old uh, setting, uh, and apparently he carried himself as such. Uh, Donald Blakenship uh, presided over his coal fields uh, from a mountaintop castle uh, that also included uh, uh, his employees that lived in the uh, area. Also. Um, I don't know. It wasn't clear if they were instructed to or if this was just sort of a little bit of Stockholm Syndrome, but uh, flew the company flag over their homes was interesting. Uh, Anyhow, so um, he has been sentenced to, I believe, one year in actual prison. They're saying most likely because he's rich, of course, he'll go and well, they say because of the the shortness of the um, because of the shortness of the uh, uh, amount of time that uh, that he actually is going to. Um, do it in uh, low, uh, low security prison yeah, as well. Probably. And the idea w- is, of course, is that they're saying, well, it's only a short amount of time, so we don't think he needs to go to maximum mm-hmm. security prison. I'm sure a whole bunch of low-level drug offenders that are spending uh, a year or less <laughs> in prison would love to be in in in, my, in low in, security in the lowest security prison. But in, that's an aside. Um, but what's really interesting here, there's there's two essentially two things here that I find very, very interesting. First of all, how is this possibly the first CEO ever <laughs> to go to jail? It's gonna be for, it's gonna be go to jail as for something you've done in within the company, right? It, it can't be just no CEO has ever been convicted of any crime. I it, the the Bloomberg story is not clear, but I would actually say that that's very likely based on the story from before. There has got to be at least one CEO who just murdered somebody and got went to jail. There just has to All be. All right, so let's put an asterisk on that. Okay, uh, we did don't do some. But the, the really interesting, the other interesting thing here, which is is interesting, so he. He clearly, like there was, uh, he didn't speak at his own trial, but there was uh, a whole bunch of recorded phone calls that heard him saying things like, "Never mind the safety regulations. You have one job, which is to get coal out of the ground." Um, there was a, a number of people that had, had made complaints about him. Uh, when there, the this uh, essentially what actually caused the uh, the the trial essentially was a a, a disaster that killed uh, quite a number of people who worked at the mines. Um, and and they they then later uh, 29 miners in West Virginia uh, they had tons of recordings of him just being like never mind that never mind the security uh, you know we'll just get more more stuff on the ground so this is this is definitely a bad person um, <laughs> this is certainly a bad person he was specifically and explicitly not just implicitly not just well the blah 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 no 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 he was like never mind the safety regulations your job is to dig coal so this person in my opinion undeniably deserves to be in jail. However, there's another interesting wrinkle to the story, which is that the part of the defense claim here from uh, his lawyers is that um, the uh, person who is going to be the U.S. attorney uh, involved in the case 
is now running for governor and has made this the center of their campaign. So they're making a, I think, entirely legitimate argument that this is also a political um, but I think both is the case. And so the part of the reason uh, part of the reason I, I chose to talk about the story, one of them is that um, is that I mean, it's important. It's somebody who's, you know, was uh, obviously, you know, uh, breaking uh, was was instructing his employees to not follow regulations and, and deserves to be in jail. But the other thing was that the, the back and forth there, I think, is very relevant to what we were just talking about, which is that. You know, there's there's sort of what the public there's the conversation that happens in public, and then there's the actual conversation. And I think it's it's almost certainly true. And this is just my opinion now, just to be careful. But uh, I think it's undeniably true that this person did things that they shouldn't have that led to people's death, and that that would should be criminal. Uh, whether or not he's ultimately found, uh, whether or not they get him out on an appeal or something like that. But also, it is totally political, and it seems pretty undeniable that this person is is using uh, this case to get elected. And so, just within the context of having the American election on right now and, and all these other things and, and because Bernie Sanders having a larger conversation uh, we're going to get to Brad Wall in a minute mm. uh, just all this or sort of all this talk of all this um, political uh, extremism and, and I include both extremism that I approve of and extremism that I don't uh, that I do of being Bernie right. Sanders of course and that I don't being Donald Trump uh, but just like within the context of the story and within the context of the American election that's going on right now, uh, just how much there's sort of like what what it is that we're actually doing in the conversations that we're having seem to have no connection whatsoever to actual reality. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's where I'm hoping that uh, you'll jump in and give me your, your thoughts on that, Stefan. It's yeah. The, it's just the idea that there's sort of like, well, these big sca- – like even during our most recent uh, – with uh, Trudeau, right? There mm-hmm. are all these things. Well, all these things or whatever and blah, blah, blah. And, but really at the end of the day, like how much of the conversation was really about the effectiveness of, or, of policy and making arguments for and against and how much of it was talking about people's hair and uh, you know stirring up r- racial tensions and, and that sort of thing. Like. Right. Well, yeah, and I think there's – so there's, uh, there's this idea that was actually given to me uh, or it was – was was flowed out to a little bit last year uh, about the idea of a pre meeting, uh, which is was it was it was at it was at a work thing and uh, and we were getting this idea of the, how most of the work in a meeting is actually happens uh, with the conversations you have before you walk into it uh, rather than the conversations you're having once you get there uh, and and I think that sort of that the fact that the, that speaks to this idea that there's always this sort of reality floating around what actually ends up getting portrayed and getting and getting absorbed uh, because we as we as society only have only have 24 hours in a day you know theoretically we are most of that time we're actually spent you know living our lives doing other things and then maybe we read this one story about this about this gentleman uh like for about five ten minutes and so and so and so we take from this story what's fascinating about this is like when you mention both sides that that's what this sort of the amount of intention we're allowed to give falls down which is that if you want to hear the story as political opportunist attacks totally functioning normal businessman CEO, you can take that from this story. If you want to take uh, the, if you want to take the, the tract of C, horrible CEO kills a bunch of people and gets away with only one year uh, while heroic uh, persec- prosecutor ensures gets some time. Uses this as an example to chain, never make sure this never happens again. Exactly. Uh, you can take that from it as well. Uh, and, and I think it's this fact that where we can look at any, like, so many stories... Uh, 
like stories have layers, and there are very very few stories that are like this is the, the this is the thing that happened. This is why. Let's talk about it. Um, in the same way that sort of that the you know flash back to the Panama Papers. In the same way that you know uh, that we have that you know reporters have to be careful not to include just retiree wants to go to the Cayman Islands with with you know David Cameron having four million having a, give, being given money through offshore accounts from his dad. Uh, you have to you have to parse all of these things out, uh, and we just don't have the time to do that in a day. Uh, and so, so much of this complexity come, and then that's the difficulty of these sort of of these sort of of these sort of stories, right? Is how do you how do you match those two things? Uh, and then to, to, to flash back to a conversation around before this before the radio show, where Sabina walks in, is like you've probably talked about every single thing uh, over and over and over again. Uh, you must be like like because like it's like let's talk about climate change again, which is literally we should just call every store every day every month like we should have, let's talk about climate change again. The Green Majority, let's have that as our name for a show every every week. Um, but I, and then what we are the, the explanation for what we end up doing is because she's right we are. Every week we mention the word climate change. Probably, I would be interested if you go back in time and if, if anyone actually wants to listen to all our shows and let us know the number, the percentage of shows we mention the word climate change. I would be mostly impressed, given that again we have the fire five hundredth show in two weeks. Are you daring people to go back and listen to five hundred episodes? I am, yes. Uh, but but I want to, what, the point that I get here is that uh, is that when you when you have all these sort of different uh, these different people like. When someone asks, like, like, what are we really doing? Are we, uh, when you report the Panama Papers, we're not reporting that we're not we're reporting a bunch of facts, but we're also doing is sort of trying to give you a wider context for these facts. Uh, because without the wider context, you're just throwing darts at a board, uh, and then people can see the darts and be like, either you're a great shot or you're a terrible shot. But you're not actually, you know, but that's their subjective opinion, and their opinion is entirely based around. Um, Around their understanding of darts, you know, like it's like if you think darts is you're supposed to miss the board, then yes, nailing it, um, mission accomplished. Yeah, exactly, uh, and, and that's what you're doing unless you give this wider context. If you don't give this wider context and this wider narrative that that these stories fit into, you're just giving people a bunch of fact points which they can then take into whatever they feel like and then use them back out into the society uh, and spread just as much truth as not truth. Yeah, uh, you know, fact and stat points are only valuable when they come within when they come within a understandable narrative, uh, and so and so and, and stories like this highlight that so much. Yeah, so l- let's say let's actually take that uh, moment to uh, get the um, uh, switch over to uh, Brad Wall here for a second, in the sense that um, you know, we, so Clark, who, uh, who's uh, you know been on the show once now, and we we're uh, hoping to get him back soon. I actually asked him to come in today, and he wasn't available, unfortunately. But um, just to talk about this, because you know, I think they really the only thing we can say here, aside from the fact that Brad Wall is uh, you know has some pretty terrifying uh, opinions about uh, climate change and the direction that he thinks the Canadian economy should be taking. Um, you know, all of the articles about this are talking about, well, you know, he, he did so well as a politician that, uh, you know, does, you know, is this, is this the, uh, the last of the, not just the last remnant, but also the potentially the site of the rebirth of, you know, conservatism in, in Canada, because look, he did really well. Um, but the actual story here that actually matters is, is this person's ideas right? And not there are certain parts of somebody's ideas, of course, that are subjective, but are certain things that are objective and are provable. And he's just demonstrably wrong about a bunch of really, really important stuff, right? So uh, Clark will come back in at some point because we're going to talk more about Brad Wall, uh, I'm sure, in the future. 
Uh, and he'll come back and help provide some of his uh, very interesting. Actually, we had an after show conversation about this and he provided some very interesting insight as to why Brad Wall is so popular in Saskatchewan. Um, but that the fact remains that well, who who why are you equating the number of votes somebody got to. Uh, anything other than how good a politician they are. But like, but that there's an assumption, oh, well, they're a good politician, therefore, like, being a good politician means you're good at getting people to vote for you. It doesn't mean you're an effective administrator. It doesn't mean that your ideas are correct. It doesn't mean that you're, you're informed about any of the issues that you're talking about. It just means that you were successful at convincing people to vote for you. And that is it. Right. So when we have these conversations, I don't care how many votes he got as, as far as my, what it matters is, is what are his poly essay ideas and what is the numbers and facts that actually back that up? And, and what actually turns out, aside from the fact that he's very, very popular and he was very successful at getting people to vote for him is, is he right? And the answer is no. In most cases, not on everything, of course, but on most of the things that I think are objectively the most important because they have the most long term impacts and implications for Canada. He's dead wrong. On a lot of them. And and that's sort of – this is that idea of those sort of two conversations about everyone's talking about, whoa, he got a lot of votes. So, the, well, I guess he's very important. Maybe he should be running for conservative leadership. Yeah, but he's wrong on everything. Not everything. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, but I think so I think what's interesting is is that it really comes to one sort of conversation uh, that, that often happen, comes out of uh, – out of the – out of – Election reporting, uh, which is you, you have a couple options for election reporting, right? And there's like there's like stock version ways to talk about election reporting. And one is uh, he's what what does this mandate mean? He gets to do. Uh, that's the most popular one usually is like he now has a mandate to do these things. Uh, and and I, I still remember when Harper won with 30 something percent of the vote. And, I, and then the conversation is like Harper's mandate. I'm like, he won 30 percent of the vote. It's not a mandate. Uh, Wall obviously won over 60. And so that's a, so he arguably does have a mandate to push his push his agenda. One of the forward. most overused words that is almost never used in a way that makes any sense whatsoever <laughs> is mandate. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, will be. Yeah. It presumes that all of the voters who vote for the person know exactly and want exactly the things the voter that, that the person has then said. Um, but uh, so that's one option. This then the, the other way to report it is that sort of what we're seeing with Brad Wall, which is that sort of is this the f- new face of conservative leadership, uh, and is this what? And it's it's really more of a it's more of a piece about whether or not we'll be writing more pieces about this in the future than actually what's happening on the ground. It's more of a it's more of a it's a more higher level thinking piece, which doesn't necessarily actually impact like what does this mean for Saskatchewan? What does it mean for people in Saskatchewan? What is like how is this going to impact your daily life? It's more just like in two years. Will we be talking? Will we still be talking about Brad Wall, uh, or or will he or, or will he not be important anymore? Uh, and you see the conservative, uh, the new conservative ads about are now all championing the uh, the new Ontario uh, PC leader, and then and then Brad Wall is like the face of, con- of conservatism, which remains just white dudes. Uh, so uh, you think you think if they were going to if they're trying to if they had any sort of sense of, of understanding how to actually pitch anything, uh, they do that, but. Uh, but yeah, like I think that this is like falls into one of those reporting, and what what I'm into, like we'll see. Like again, yeah, Brad Wall has been a, basically a, a, a massive climate laggard within, and that's what obviously we're referring to when you say he's wrong. Uh, is that he's that's the one thing he's sort of obviously f- fighting with, with honestly almost the rest of the provinces at this point. Uh, he's like you know we suddenly have an Alberta government that might be willing to play ball, and yet we now we have the, their neighbors being like, eh, but do we? <laughs> So let, let's take another pause there as well. Uh, uh, Brenna uh, Owens is going to be joining us uh, for the last section of the show, but we're going to go to a music break first. But before we even do that, Sabina is going to jump in and surprise me. What is the bonus show going to be about today? Climate change. <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually the truth. So today on the bonus show, we're going to be talking about 
uh, Catherine McKenna's statement at the Progress Summit, where she said that many Canadians would turn against action on climate change if the government went too far too fast. And I see Brenna shaking her head there. Well, I was at the Progress Summit. Oh, so perfect. <laughs> not in person. Yeah, but, Fabulous. So but, more, from, more, more from both of you on that topic exactly. uh, after the show. After the main show as well, yet another great reason to uh, listen to the bonus show. Uh, also, thank I really I, I also sorry just want to take a quick second as well. We received a ton of really interesting email recently. A lot of it about last week's episode, but also um, I think a lot of people obviously heard my appeal for let's do more of this. You send us your idea, whatever. We got a whole ton of emails. So I just want to, uh, I'm still going through it. I'm a little bit behind. I apologize. But uh, just for all the listeners who did write in, I did see your email and thank you so much for doing that. We're, I will be responding to you soon. And for any other listeners, please do send us your thoughts, send us your comments, send us your show suggestions. Tell us when you think we got something wrong because that happens probably a lot. Uh, but without uh, anything further, Edward, what is our second and final music break going to be? All right. So we're back. We're into the final session here, the home stretch. Uh, of the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, one of our wonderful and very appreciated international community radio partners. You could be listening on the podcast uh, for the extended version, which we'll be uh, talking about uh, some uh, some more politics here uh, as well on today's bonus show. Uh, or you could be listening on Rabble.ca, one of our other very appreciated uh, syndicate partners. Uh, quick reminder again as well, next week will be our spring membership drive. We're also going to do an extended bonus show to, uh, to that we also produce a show, hopefully, mm-hmm. maybe even a full-length additional show so that there's an actual show. In addition to the fundraiser, it will just be done off-air. So uh, don't worry if you're uh, – uh, for two reasons. One, because we actually have some cool guests coming in uh, for the uh, fundraising show. And as well, we'll also be producing an additional show is there as well. But uh, start saving your pennies. Maybe get the small coffee instead of the large today. Uh, a couple of bucks here, a couple of bucks there. Uh, and help us raise some money for CIUT next week. It will be very appreciated and very needed. This is uh, re- important revenue. This is actually how the station functions and how we're able to been bring this to you for about to be 500 episodes is because of CIUT. So please stay tuned for that. Uh, put some loonies and toonies and maybe a couple of 20s aside, and we'll see you next week for that. And uh, secondly, of course, for our... Uh, 500th episode party, which is the week after that. You can uh, we'll be giving away some tickets for that, Stefan, ah. during the bon- uh, during the fall fundraiser. Or sp- I keep saying fall, spring fundraiser next fall week. Fall into spring. Fall into spring uh, next week, and uh, and you can also just get some at uh, 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 GreenMajority.ca. It would be very nice to see you. It's nothing uh, super pompy. Uh, we're just gonna uh, have a beverage and hang out for like three hours uh, after the show that evening. It's gonna be fun. Please check it out, GreenMajority.ca for all that and more. Without further ado, though. The final section here, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, sort of solar energy, renewable energy, and and water. I'm going to try and tie it into one. One of them was uh, – I'm just going to skim through a couple of headlines, and I'm going to open it up to you guys to see you know how you want to string these together. One of them was that the Netherlands has now said they've just – in a majority vote uh, in uh, – has now said the, the Dutch parliament – uh, that they are committing to no longer allowing new sales of petrol or diesel cars. That's right. Uh, full electric only, it appears, after 2025. Uh, so only zero emission, sustainable zero emission cars will be purchasable. Um, this, of course, will not uh, prevent um, used vehicles from being purchased. So this does not eliminate all petrol or uh, diesel um, cars off the road. It will simply mean that no new ones may be sold. And this also combines with some emission standards, too. So it's not just going to result in a whole bunch of, like, super polluty old cars being driven instead of newer ones because there are also certain regulations to, to, to you know, the, the emission standards are still in effect. Uh, there's some skepticism, of course, from opposing parties. Nobody's surprised about whether or not this is doable. Uh, but this is interesting because this was part of a 
uh, deal uh, eight U.S. states and five countries, one of which was the Netherlands, joined the International Zero Emission Vehicle Alliance, pledging to make all new passenger vehicles electric for sale, fully electric by 2050. Uh, this is the Netherlands going above and beyond and saying we're going to double down and do 2025. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. So let me do two more really quickly, and then and then we'll open it up for comment. Another one is something that uh, crossed my digital desk, if you will, yeah. uh, is a drinking tower that pulls water out of thin air. Now, there's uh, I've seen a number of these uh, types of things. Of course, the uh, the the uh, Bill uh, uh, Bill Gates Foundation uh, has been very investing in trying to provide. Um, uh, water and resource uh, uh, scarce resource support, if you will, for developing nations. Uh, there was the reinvent the toilet challenge. There was a, uh, a fancy system that converts toilet water to drinking water. Um, uh, also, some other people like Matt Damon, uh, who is the uh, co-founder of Water.org, uh, who have invested lots and lots of money um, in uh, specifically in Africa in a lot of the cases to try and do this. However, it's it's maintained one ongoing challenge. And that one ongoing challenge is that technology is expensive and requires upkeep and repair. And so even if they can pay uh, to have all this uh, fancy technology installed in, you know, relatively speaking, to compared to you know what we're used to here in Toronto, fairly simple villages with very, uh, very less uh, lower access to sort of resources, shall we say, um, that you know these are they require a lot of money to keep them upkeep so the ongoing costs would be very very high there's nobody around who has the equipment the expertise or the education to actually repair or maintain them so generally speaking a lot of these initiatives have been ma- massive wastes of time they've come up with some really fancy technology which doesn't do isn't cost effective in rich countries and isn't cost effective in developing countries and basically they're like good for you you made a really expensive widget Mm-hmm. Um, so what's really interesting is that this is supposed to cost $500 currently. It pulls water directly out of the air, so you don't need to drill uh, you know, me- hundreds of meters or thousands of meters underground. Uh, sorry, thousands of feet, hundreds of meters underground. Um, and literally pulls it from the air. It uses passive solar technology to power it and is otherwise uh, all based on the material. So these can be easily assembled. Uh, from fairly inexpensive things to, for reference, the uh, toilet that the Bill Gates Foundation came up with is about $2,200 for the initial buy and install plus ongoing cost to repair it, even if you have somebody handing around who has an advanced engineering degree. Uh, these cost about $500, and that's at their current production level. Uh, they think they can get the cost down to about half that or less. So about 250 bucks, anybody can set it up. They're easily knowledgeable uh, and will provide uh, clean drinking water directly from the air. Very interesting. Last story, and then we'll open it up for comment. Solar industry says that 70,000 jobs are knocking on Alberta's door. Uh, this uh, there's some very interesting back and forth numbers in the article. This, of course, is uh, of course well people should assume because uh, they've been doing an amazing job recently. This is from the National Observer, and uh, there's some interesting back and forth here about well, you know maybe, well okay maybe doing it this way is a little bit better, or doing it that way is a little bit better. If you're interested in solar opportunities in Alberta, I'm going to uh, just suggest that you read the article, which of course like everything else will be linked in the show post. Uh, but the really interesting thing here that I wanted to sort of point out was that what was it uh, a week ago? And we'll get into uh, Catherine McKenna in, in a few moments. And I know Brenna's sort of uh, very eager to talk about that. And maybe she'll help us segue into the bonus show with a comment about that angle on it and some of Justin Trudeau's recent comments uh, about the oil industry. But there was somebody who was like, well, this, you know, but this pipeline is going to create 132 temporary jobs and then 22 of them will be permanent. 70,000 jobs building solar panels just in Alberta. Mm. Suck it, oil. (laughs) 
Uh, that's my summary. Stefan right. for <clears throat> Uh So I want to just jump back to the first one, uh, which is the EV sales, uh, in part because it's also, uh, you know, the larger pre- conversation, of course, it has to include uh, Elon Musk and, and Tesla's uh, latest, latest, I think it's Model 3, which has sold over 200, maybe almost uh, 200,000 pre-orders already. Uh, and, and the sort of exp- – and so solar – the conversation of – sorry, solar. The conversation around electric vehicles has sort of been ramping up in, right around now, largely because of, of Tesla's sales. Uh, and so in response to that, you're seeing some you know, very interesting backlash, uh, specifically from perhaps climate change's most uh, – most infuriating uh, gentleman, Bjorn Lomberg, uh, who just has made a career off just being wrong about things, uh, but but getting to call himself an environmentalist while while basically advocating for fossil fuels, uh, who tweeted who, out ma- who makes his love uh, his living traveling the world and and providing facty sounding arguments for climate deniers to use in why they should vote against climate uh, policy. Let's exactly. just be clear about what his job is. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, and, and his tweet really fits that perfectly, uh, which is. Just tweet was all electric cars sold so far will postpone global warming by 30 minutes by 2100 the price tag nine billion dollars in subsidies uh and and so i and so i, I there was, lomberg is famously bad at math uh yeah and so and so this was then this was then this was then uh retweeted with some snark uh, uh well some agreeing with the lomberg some, some snark uh by a couple different canadian uh journalists and so it got to my attention i i was and so i did i did some math uh, and nine billion, so it's nine billion uh, euro. It's not, it's not American dollars. It's euro because it's, it's a British study or a, a European study, uh, which is nine billion euro is point two percent of yearly fossil fuel subsidies worldwide. Uh, so this is point two percent of what we're currently giving fossil fuels still, as they are the richest companies in the world worldwide. And and yet the idea that the idea that we would be, and yet you're, you're pitching nine billion as if it's an ungodly ungo- large number, while it so much pays in comparison to the, I think it's 3.4 trillion euro that still, to this day, goes to the richest companies in the world for fossil fuel exploitation. Uh, so to pretend that this is that this is somehow expensive price tag, especially when the fossil fuel subsidies, when everyone defends them, it's like, well, we need the fossil fuel subsidies to support their energy sector. And so what is different? What is different between this and if you need it to support the energy sector, which is the most most profitable sector. How on earth can you then say that that, that it's you, so you're wasting your time with, the, with electric vehicles? You're just yeah. intentionally committing this un, this failure. Of but yeah, and the, these are the same people. The oil, oil people connected to the oil industry in Canada will come out with a completely straight face and say, you know, well, renewables aren't ready because they're going to need a whole bunch of government subsidy. Mm-hmm. Unlike us, because we just put it in our pocket, you chumps. <laughs> I'm assuming that's the other half of the sentence. Right. I'm just you know paraphrasing. Yeah, uh, and the last the little bit on that that one tweet because it really bothered me. Uh, you can go on my Twitter if you can find it. And then also tweet me a picture of a turtle because I'm still on this campaign. Um, <laughs> you did get one tweet of a turtle. I got one tweet of a turtle, but it was from someone I knew. It didn't count. Um, but uh, so the the other piece of this uh, is that what I love about this tweet from Bjorn Lomberg uh, is that it sort of implies that he, it, it, it lacks an understanding of, of, of bell curve, uh, of curves, um, in that it's, you know, that's all, all electric vehicles sold so far. 
So basically, it's like you know, if you look at you know, a, a, a sort of normalization curve, uh, which uh, which I'm sure Sabina can uh, can correct me on what, what they're called in the bonus show. <laughs> I guess I'll describe them to you and you'll explain it to me. Uh, but if you understand this sort of curve, um, what he's basically saying is like we're just at the beginning of, of a massive expansion of, of electric vehicles. Uh, and but how on earth could? But that doesn't mean they were changing at all. Obviously, it's still useless. Why should we care? And it's the exact same thing as if you look at. Um, you know, it's, it's like someone in the early 1900s being like, well, if you took all of the cars that exist now, uh, you'd only save 30 minutes off your drive. So why would we ever switch from horses? Yeah, it's, it completely understands the, the, the fact that we're chain, like change is we're the beginning stages of this change, and you're completely just not understanding that. Yeah, I'll, I'll take my earlier comment back. Bjorn Lomber is actually very good at math. What he does with math is he constructs it in a way so that there people who aren't good at math think that the opposite of what's true can be concluded. Uh, but uh, Brenna now is going to uh, join us uh, uh, just for the final minute of the show to help us provide a segue to the bonus show where we're going to talk a whole bunch about uh, how this relates to Canadian policy. So please do. Yeah. We've got about four minutes. Please just, jump just in. Just a couple of remarks. So um, talking a little bit about electric vehicles. So obviously it matters where we get the electricity to fuel those vehicles. Um, so the CBC just a few hours ago today released um, – an analysis by John Pittis of the business unit in which um, he says that the CAPP, uh, Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, um, has announced a $50 billion drop in expected new investment in the oil and gas industry. So this is also relevant to um, the new solar jobs in Alberta that we were talking about. And this comes from an academic journal, Applied Energy. And kind of the innovation, he says, of this report is that it extends the concepts of stranded assets. So for instance, fossil fuels that have not been extracted into the yet to the actual equipment and infrastructure of the plants mm. um, and it really provides like a business case for why investing in continued investment in fossil fuels is actually going to be like bad for our economy like from a purely almost investor uh, point of view and which is not really the view that I'm used to articulating or <laughs> arguing from um, but uh, but this is incompatible with what we've seen the direction of the new Canadian government going. Like I had, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau's remarks at the Globe Summit uh, a few months ago uh, about how pipelines and renewables are not incompatible. Uh, and also then Environment and Climate Change Minister McKenna at the Progress Summit, where I was just last weekend, making remarks that if we take action on climate change that's too fast, it will disrupt national unity. First of all, national unity sounds suspiciously like something John A. Macdonald would say. <laughs> um, and I actually heard someone quote John A. Macdonald in making a case against proportional representation, and I think that was a low point of the summit. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to the bonus show and kind of digging into this concept of national unity and how it's being used to drive a, a wedge kind of in what it means to be Canadian and taking action on climate change. Yeah, and I think it was sort of we, we have like 30 seconds left in the main show. So just to, to sort of wrap up the show and we'll get be back with uh, Sabina, <clears throat> excuse me, and more comments from, from Brett on this topic as well, uh, is just, you know, this is the idea of, you know, the, the establishment sort of protecting itself because all of a sudden Catherine McKenna, who has quite a bit of... <clears throat> educational experience on climate change suddenly apparently is forgetting some of the hard facts and numbers that she was trained in because they're completely incompatible with her current statements. We'll have to leave it there for the live show. Thanks for listening to The Green Majority this week on CIUT. If you want some more, go to the uh, website and get the podcast. We'll be right back for that. Other than that, see you next week for the Spring Fundraiser. Have a good week. Green week, folks.
So that's it for the regular show. We're now getting into the bonus show. Please, a reminder as well, we would love to see if you're in the Toronto area. Please do come out to our 500th episode party. Just a short few hours. Hang out. Have a beer with us if you're of drinking age uh, and some uh, soda, perhaps, if you're not. Uh, that's the day of Earth Day in the evening. So check out greenmajority.ca for that as well. Of course, you can support us all year round for as little as a dollar a month at Patreon, which is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash greenmajority. Enjoy the bonus show. Hello and welcome to the bonus show. I am your host, Sabina Husseini. So this is for Darren, if you don't know how to say my name. And we also have Brenna and Darren here with us. And today we're just going to be talking about the National Observer article, Moving Too Fast on Climate Change Could Damage National Unity, which is what Catherine McKenna said. And that is exactly what Brenna was talking about a little bit earlier during the radio show. So what what she's really saying is that her major argument is that too lo- a lot of people is, is, are going to lose their jobs if we move too fast and too far for our climate change action. And it could collapse communities and we have to be really careful in putting people off. And this was during the Progress Summit, which Brenna was there at. And if you want to have a little comment about that. I mean, yeah. So my, well, my first comment on you just said it could collapse communities. OK, like let's look at the communities that have already collapsed or are economically depressed, primarily communities with like intersectional identities of like marginalization, like First Nations communities where people are actually dying because of the effects. Like this is environmental racism. And her saying, like, of course, I care about people being able to live in Alberta. I, I care about people having jobs. But like there's a lot of systemic marginalization and racism going on here that is completely ignored when Catherine McKenna says something like that, and especially when she points to national unity. Because as I said on the show, that rings completely true with John A. McDonald's nation-building project like the railroad. Pipelines on the tar sands are being used to quote-unquote unite Canadians, but that's impossible because I'm not going to feel any more Canadian. I'm not going to feel united because of that. Um, If anything, it's creating division between quote-unquote progressives or people who care about climate change and Alberta. And we were talking about Brad Wall. And if that's the new face of conservatism, that's just going to play into division of the country and Western alienation. My friend who lives in Saskatoon was like, well, Brad Wall can't speak French. He's not, he's a Western premier. He's not a Canadian prime minister. Mm. Uh, Sorry. So a little bit of a rant there. Um, but, but yeah. I think, I think the, the thing on that, though, is that is that the, I think the part that rings the least true for me about what she said was that you could make that argument about anything. Like, why oil? Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not against unity projects. Why can't it be renewable energy? Right. Like, it's 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 completely arbitrary at best, I think, to say that this is the thing that will bring us unity, even if we just accept that, you know, national unity is the is the most important priority, which I think it's important. I don't think it's the most important. But even if we grant that it is, why oil? Yeah, I'm not as big of a fan of national unity personally, but um, I do like exactly couldn't we and I'm not a huge I'm not a fan of the climate change as an opportunity rhetoric, because I think it erases the like human rights disasters that are going on. Um, But I do think that like, why not renewables? That could be an opportunity for, and of course on one side, if you're pursuing national unity through oil, you're, you're, 
you're alienating one side. If you pursue it through renewables, you're alienating the other. And what's happening is like the establishment establishment is choosing the establishment side instead of choosing to pursue unity through renewables if unity is the primary concern. Which is definitely not it's not surprising at all. But what to what you were talking about earlier, where you were talking about the Aboriginal and the marginalized communities, what's really awful is that actually Catherine McKenna said that she's also heard from people in northern communities who are concerned about a possible carbon tax since they can't afford to pay their food. That is very irrelevant to like they can't afford to pay their food because of like systems that have just pushed them down for generation after generation in the places that they live. It has nothing to do with, you know, putting a pipeline in the ground. It has nothing to do with moving towards like uh, trying to mitigate climate change like that actually putting greenhouses or like all of these like very new technologies in those communities that are very good for the environment would make them a lot easier to be able to pay for food and afford food. And actually going towards like a carbon-free future is a lot better for those communities in every single possible way. And if people are concerned that a carbon tax is going to raise food prices, like that's a legitimate concern. Mm -hmm. But again, everything that you said, it's the systems that are causing food insecurity. And one of Catherine McKenna's, I'm sorry, but favorite things to do, and I've heard her do this multiple times, I've heard her say the words, I have Inuit friends. That's like saying I'm not racist because I have a black friend. Like she uses certain interactions and relationships that she has with indigenous people, individuals to justify ignoring the systemic change that needs to happen. Well, I I think it's, it's indistinguishably no different than what was happening under Harper in the sense that this whole idea of free and open transparency is nonsense. She has been instructed. This is the federal party position. You do whatever you need to do to back it up. Yeah, right? so maybe She's I not, shouldn't. I'm kind of like criti- heaping a lot of criticism on her as an individual. No, no, no. I, no, I, I am. I, just, I should just I think it's. That. I think yeah. it's all valid. But it, I, I just meant to add that not to contradict you, but just yeah, to add the context yes. into which that is happening, yeah. right? Like this is politics as usual. This is just the same as what we had under Harper to the extent within this area anyway. I'm not saying across the board. Uh, but that her job now is to back up the party position. And the party position is that we're going to build pipelines anyway. And so her job now is to use her credentials to find whatever best thing she can say. You know, it's like your boss coming to you. I don't care how you do it. Just do it. This is your job now. Sell this plan. I also do believe that individual politicians who are in like positions of power in a party can push back. Mm-hmm. But I d- but, they you know, can. then we saw what's up. <laughs> they can. They can. And we're not seeing that from McKenna. And I mean, also, we saw Linda McQuaig, the NDP, member of the NDP, push back to say her party needs to an adopt, keep adopt, keep it in the ground. And there was blowback. Mm. And I'm really she had to take that statement back. Exactly. Yeah. I'm really interested to see what's going to happen at the NDP leadership convention, which is actually happening this weekend, um, to see whether there's going to be, first of all, whether Tom will care will prevail or whether there's the party will go in a more like I, a lot of my NDP friends are saying, build us a, a party for a real party for the left, which includes climate change in a more significant way than what we've seen it talked about. Yeah. And I think how this ties into what we we're talking about today was that like, that's my definition between a leader and a politician. Mm. A politician figures out what is the going to be the easiest, most politically salient, require the least effort, ruffle the least amount of feathers thing to achieve roughly what I said I thought maybe I was going to do. Uh, And a leader says, I'm going to make some hard choices. This is what we need to do and sell. So it's the difference between receiving 
instructions from either the voters or from the people that funded their campaigns. Uh, and the reason I said from the voters as a bad thing was because the voters have no idea about the science. They have no idea what the policy options really are. They have no idea how much any of these things cost. They get all this information from the politicians, right? So it's a, it's a vicious circle of ignorance. Uh, and so what they're even they're asking for is not necessarily true. And this is what we're going to talk about when we get to our limits of democracy option was it assumes that the public is well informed and they're demonstrably not. Um, but what a leader would do would say, okay, well, all right. So if we're concerned is that, you know, so if you're really concerned, which I don't buy for a second, that the real concern is, you know, well, people aren't going to be able to afford stuff. Um, well, if you don't do anything, those prices are going to get even worse faster for starters. But for second of all, what a leader would do as opposed to a politician is say, great, we're going to create, we're going to expand the social safety net and guarantee a minimum income for every single Canadian. So now every single person can afford food and maybe you don't get two cars and maybe you don't have a PS3 or PS4, whatever it is. I just dated myself again. (laughs) Uh, but that nobody is, no Canadian will ever, ever again starve to death. That's what a leader would do. What a politician would do is what we're getting now. Yeah, but that that is like a very like strong stance on like going towards like a, a political system that is like not where we are right now. And it doesn't require a systems change. It, that's that's a single policy that, of which the legislation does, has already been put yeah. together require real systems change but i think but that a lot of people it's just such a weird concept to them like for for a lot of people it's like great yeah that would be amazing but i don't know there's all of those uh oppositions where it's like people are going to be lazy and blah blah and I, i don't think canada would ever be a leader in that i don't think we're gonna if it ha- is gonna come from somebody it's probably gonna come from some northern country in europe like what i find most ironic is that we because we're comparing ourselves to the to the united states we see canada as having a strong safety net because we have universal health care mm-hmm. but when you yeah when you when you compare us to Sweden, the social security Denmark. systems of northern europe it's where we no we don't have a social safety countries net. Countries <laughs> with the highest rankings in the world for social, uh, social, not only social health, so an objective analysis of social well-being, but also the reporting of happiness. Yes. Both of those things, all of those countries align up to a, at a perfect one-to-one ratio. Mm-hmm. Most people don't know that. Most people don't care. Most people think that life there is terrible. You're wrong. Just wrong. And the thing is, is when you talk to a lot of people that live in those types of societies, they actually get shocked as to when you when you talk about how life is like here and a lot of people here are very capitalistic you know you you just go for it to acquire wealth and to do all of like just to get more crap basically whereas over there it's a completely different state of mind and i think it has to come from that state of mind change and people have to become more aware of the fact that they're not living that well and just going to buy the latest ipod and iphone and material whatever is not actually like what happiness is happiness is you know sharing and community and all of that or whatever it may mean to you it's just our idea of happiness is a capitalistic idea of like acquiring material things and like having objects be like our our idea of whatever pleasure which is not not the truth that's not like what happiness is and And not to like i it's it's sad because often we can't control those impulses because it's the system that creates them. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't want to heap too much like blame on individuals and Darren might disagree um, because it's hard to be happy in such a capitalistic, materialistic, individualistic system. And so sometimes you have to do what you have to do to yeah, like sure. 
yeah, put a band aid on. It's the whole idea that the people who are in positions to change the rules only got there by by using the rules that exist, yeah. right? So, of course, those people aren't going to like like the thing with okay, well, how are you going to pay for how are you going to pay for it? That's what everybody's first response is when I talk about or when anybody talks about as a you know a, a guaranteed minimum income. Um, great, I can do it with one step that pretty much no average person, any Canadian anywhere, would disagree with. Make people who are avoiding taxes pay them. I've just paid for the entire social safety net. You have to understand the gravity of just how much money is being stolen out of every individual Canadian's pocket because that money, that the, the public purse is your team money. That's your expenditures. So when the people with the most money hide a bunch of it, they're stealing from you. Right, they're stealing from you. That's your money. That's that's not we're we're not stealing from them. It's not their money. It's our money because they use services from the public. They use those services to then enrich themselves. And now they're saying, I don't want to pay you back for that loan I took out from you by using your roads and using your by using your employees by using the education system that we paid for, so that I have educated employees. They're skimming off your money. They're stealing from you and then telling you that you can't have anything back. No, no, no. We can't afford a social safety net uh, because we don't have any money. Well, why? Well, because I hit it offshore and it didn't go into the public purse, right? So the, the, we don't require, you know, we don't require, you know, armed revolt. We don't even require, you know, shattering our system and, and building it up from scratch. If we just make people who owe money pay it. We can have the things that we think that we're told daily is is unattainable. Uh, it's not. That's just untrue, and it doesn't even require a revolution. It just requires enforcing the actual rules that are in place now. I really like the point that you made earlier when you were talking on the show, and you said um, that person that you were talking about with Stefan, he's not a bad mathematician. It's just that he like talks about math in a certain way that other people that are bad in math will think that it's correct. Yeah, Bjorn and- Lomberg is one of the top ten scums of the earth. And so I think that that's exactly what happens when people try, for example, with renewable energy, what you guys were saying is that they, they'll say, it's we have to do $44 billion in subsidies, but then they mention nothing about the subsidies for the fossil fuel industry. And it's kind of like that that placement of messages, like when it comes to renewables, they'll talk about the money, whereas when it comes to oil and gas, they'll talk about the benefits or the jobs that they're going to be creating. Like it's just literally framing of messages in order to get people to think, oh but this is going to cost so much and we don't we don't have the technology there if you have even like one increment of a scientific background you know that the technology is there if you read anything the technology is there it's just somebody that that business person just needs the money like a little bit of money to just get that started as soon as you go into production and then as soon as you go into mass production boom like the cost to make that is then negligible because you know you're producing so much of it and it's actually renewable so Yeah, it's so interesting how (laughs) renewables are framed as the costs and oil and gas is framed. Honestly, I don't think, I think people are just trying to keep status quo. Like, how is it even being framed? We've resorted to national unity. (laughs) If when you, when you ignore all of the downsides of one thing and ignore all of the upsides of another thing, it doesn't matter what those interchange any two things. And you can make something that's in reality demonstrably better seem worse. Even when like articles are coming out, like the one I was mentioning about $50 billion projected losses in investments in fossil fuel infrastructure in Canada, we're still not talking about the money. Honestly, the, we had somebody come in from the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, and they do the like they're one of the largest pension plans in Canada and around the world. And they were talking about the 
responsible investing. And they're just pretty much kind of what UFT is trying to do with their ESG data for their divestment uh, movement. But this, uh, like the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan uh, person, investor, was talking to us about ESG. And then she said that we actually don't turn away any any of our investments based on like if it's oil or gas, but we just look at like the impacts that they would have and like how much money we would lose. And uh, we looked after and they had lost like, I think like a hundred million dollars or more, maybe $400 million because they didn't actually do that. And they like invested in divest. Yeah, Yeah. They didn't divest and they could have actually gained so much more money from investment if they would have just divested. Shout out to the U of T divestment movement for pushing back on the no decision. Yeah. That was a rally yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, I was invited as many, many people were to come and and be a part of that. And and I wasn't able to go, but I, I did leave a comment on the Facebook page for it, which was, you know, please somebody remind them that this is, you know, in a, you know the and this is my usual soapbox that I like to pull out, but you know there a lot of there's a lot of really completely valid ethical arguments to be made for it. But forget that for a minute. This is just financially stupid, right? Even the oil companies are admitting sort of quietly, but pretty much nobody thinks that oil is going to continue to be a good investment. So you're all of your arguments, none of them work. There's no wow, you know that would be really ethical, but we can't afford to be ethical. No, no, this is financially stupid. If the only thing you look at is money. These are still bad decisions. Exactly. It frustrates me just as a final thought that we're still having this conversation because we know, again, and I think I've said this before, like companies like Synovus are going to be solar and large scale wind companies in the future. And they're still going to be doing that on stolen indigenous land. So can we talk about how to decolonize, I suppose? And I feel vastly ill-equipped to to talk about this. Mm -hmm. Um, and move on to that discussion instead of whether or not we should still be pursuing the tar sands. Yeah, and then getting uh, getting Catherine McKenna to say that uh, we were taking too much of an action against climate change, and this is going to impact food security for Aboriginal people. Like, come on now, like, give me a break. <laughs> you know what? You know what costs way less than the amount of oil subsidies we give. Providing even just food for people that can't afford it. Yeah. Would would is a rounding error compared to the amount of subsidy that, that some of the richest corporations in the world get um, for being in business. Hey, you're a successful business. We're going to take taxpayer money and give you a bonus. Hardworking son of a gun. Uh, Sabina, I think that's probably good for about time. Would you like to uh, read us out, say uh, goodbye? You were just listening to the after show uh, for Green Majority. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>